Let's open with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, we thank you once again. Another opportunity to come together to worship you, to uh, learn from your word, to learn about how it has come to us, and uh, Lord, just what a blessing it is that uh, that we can read it um, in our own language. And uh, Lord, it's just the the vast majority of the the people on the earth have that available to them that uh, they can just uh, just read it in their own tongue. Um, and God, it is available. Um, and God, I just pray that you would continue to make it more available to more people. And uh, God, for those of us who have it, uh, often it can just become something that we're that we're very used to that we don't um, don't view as um, as as precious as we should. And so, God, I just pray that our our hearts would be drawn to your word, that we would delight to read it, that we would just take every opportunity that we that we can to to dive deeper into your word. And that, God, that through that, you would change us um, and that you would bring all glory to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we are continuing our study of how we got the Bible. Um, this week, we're going to look at translation. So just to go over our um, outline again, um, looking at historical things, uh, the copying, the corruption, and the restoration. Uh, we've gone over those things. Uh, we talked about canon last week, um, as far as like which books actually belong in the Bible. Um, and then this morning, we're going to talk about translation. And of course, we will eventually get to the theological part of inspiration and inerrancy. Now, one of the reasons why uh, discussing translation is so important can be summed up pretty good uh, by this quote here. Uh, I pulled this from an article, The Bible So Misunderstood It's a Sin. Um, it says, uh, Plain telephone with the Word of God. No television preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Now, you can probably guess um, that uh, this fellow is not a fan of Christianity. Um, and... Uh, probably not surprising, is a fan of Bart Ehrman. Um, Bart Ehrman, I don't think, would ever go quite so far as, as, uh, as what this person goes. But, um, but uh, amongst the, um, you know, the problem of just the copies of copies of copies things that um, we've, we've kind of addressed already, um, there's also just the idea that, at best, we've read a bad translation a translation of translations of translations. Um, and so oftentimes, if people don't know the history of how we got the Bible, um, they can come to the conclusion that, well, yeah, the Bible was written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek, and then it was translated into Latin, and then it was translated into German, and then it was translated into English, or something along those lines. And so... Gosh, what we have today is just—it's just been translated so many times that, like, how could you possibly 
you know, have anything close to what's correct. I mean, isn't going to lose something every time you translate it. Um, and I've even seen people who have uh, attempted to prove this principle by uh, taking some kind of statement and dumping it into an online uh, automatic translator and translated it into some other language and then taking that statement in that language and translating it back into English. And you get very comical results when you do that because just the computer is just not going to do that good of a, of a job at translating. And, uh, and so they say, see, we just can't, we just can't have any reliable uh, knowledge of what the Bible actually said when we're, you know, we're looking at all these translations. Um, and I'm hoping that all of you are already aware of this, um, just in principle, but the, the fact is, is that our Bibles today um, are not translations of translations. Uh, they are completely translations directly from the original language with no intermediate languages. Um, here we use the ESV primarily. Um, Old Testament is translated directly from the Hebrew. New Testament is translated directly from the Greek. Um, it's just going straight from the original languages um, into uh, what's called the receptor language, uh, the language that, that we speak. Um, so it's really just kind of a false view. Um, but it's good just as we as we consider this to get just a, a kind of a history of how the the Bible was translated throughout the ages. Um, and we've talked about that to some degree as we've gone through um, these various topics we've talked about. Um, and we've talked about the fact that the Old Testament was translated into Greek as the Septuagint. Um, so we have that. Um, probably <clears throat> the most significant translation of ancient times is the Vulgate. Um, now, the Vulgate is not the first Latin translation. There was an old Latin translation. In fact, there may have been a handful of old Latin translations. Um, very early on, the church wanted to have the Bible in Latin. Um, there was just many people who spoke Latin, thanks to the to the Roman Empire, it was a very common language over vast geographic regions, and so it was very useful to have the Bible in Latin. Um, but the most famous Latin version, and rightly so, is the Vulgate. Uh, Jerome, he lived around 340 to 420. Uh, he was commissioned by the Bishop of Rome in 382 to create a fresh translation uh, of the Bible into Latin. Um, and it was completed uh, in 405, and it was translated from the Greek and Hebrew, uh, which that actually sets it apart from the Old Latin because the Old Latin was translated just from the Greek. It was, I think I mentioned that in a previous lesson uh, where people had the Septuagint. They had the Old Testament translated into Greek, often bound together with their New Testament Greek. And so their New Testament was coming straight from the original Greek, but their Old Testament uh, was a translation and so the Old Latin ones just took, took that translation of the Old Testament and used it as their basis for the Old Testament. But Jerome believed that it was important to go back to the original language um, when, he, uh, when you're making a translation of the Bible and not going through some other translation. Uh, so he went and learned Hebrew and uh, made his translation uh, of the Old Testament from the Hebrew. And that was the dominant Bible of the Western Church for over a thousand years. Um, it was just a, a very important Bible. Um, 
just had a, a great impact on a lot of things. Now there were some things that were problematic with it, which uh, certainly contributed to some of the errors of the Roman Catholic Church, um, but uh, it still was a, a very good and very valuable translation. Now, um, in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, we saw an explosion of translations into many European languages. Um, it just became very, uh, in a sense, popular. There was even, in a sense, competition uh, amongst uh, different um, nations to, you know, to try to make translations into their own tongue. Um, oftentimes, the Roman Catholic authorities uh, did not appreciate this very much. Uh, oftentimes, the translations called into question uh, certain things that the, the Roman Catholic Church taught and uh, so that certainly caused a lot of conflict. Um, as far as English, which is, I mean, we're English speakers, that's primarily what we're going to be dealing with. So uh, English has a, has a long history of Bible translations. Even going before uh, this explosion of translations in the 15th and 16th centuries, um, there, there were various parts of the New Testament uh, or of the Bible as a whole um, but uh, not the whole Bible, uh, were translated over the years. Um, it was very popular to translate uh, the Psalms, for example. Um, so there's a fairly early English version of the Psalms. Um, but the first person to really try to do um, an entire Bible in English uh, was John Wycliffe. Uh, he lived from around 1320 to 1384, um, as I said, it was the first time someone attempted to translate the entire Bible into English. Um, now he translated from the Latin Vulgate. And if you remember from our discussion of Erasmus and the printing of the Greek New Testament, that happened in the um, in the 1500s. This is, uh, I think, 1516, if I remember correctly, was the first published printed Greek New Testament. Um, and I believe the, the first printed Hebrew uh, Old Testament came after that, um, so it wasn't readily available to you know to get a hold of the Greek and Hebrew at the time of, of John Wycliffe, um, and it was also very uncommon for people to actually be able to speak these languages. Um, it wasn't really until the Renaissance when it became popular for people to learn Greek and Hebrew, um, and again the the texts just weren't readily available. I mean, you could go to some monastery and find a, a Greek New Testament, but um, uh, of course, at this point, there is no printed text at all. Um, this is this is prior to the invention of the uh, of the Gutenberg printing press. So all of this is is done handwritten. Um, so uh, Wycliffe he translated the New Testament that was done in 1380, um, and the Old Testament was completed uh, by Nicholas of Hereford around 1388. And you can see that. Uh, Wycliffe died before that happened, so uh, he had been working on the Old Testament but was unable to complete it, and so uh, someone else uh, finished the work. Um, but then uh, Wycliffe's secretary, uh, John Purvey, uh, he revised Wycliffe's Bible around 1395, and so there's what's known as a, as a later Wycliffe Bible, but it's still basically the same thing, it's just a, a revision. Um, but uh, these, these Bibles were circulated by the Lollards. Uh, they were a group of people who basically followed the teachings of John Wycliffe, um, and they went around teaching people the Bible in English. Um, 
And, uh, but of course, all the circulation had to be done by hand copying. It was still that period of time. But still, a very important um, Bible. Uh, for the first time, we have the entire Bible in English. Um, I'm sure many people are familiar with William Tyndale. He's, um, he lived from around 1492 to 1536. Uh, this is the first English Bible to be printed. Now, as New Testament only, he didn't get to finish the Old Testament, but um, he's the first one to actually get a printed uh, Bible in English. Um, and he was translating from the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, again, following uh, Jerome's principle of just going straight from the original languages. Um, he completed the New Testament in 1526. Uh, he got the Pentateuch done in 1530. You know, continued to work on uh, the Old Testament, uh, but before he could complete the Old Testament translation, he was executed in 1536. He was uh, viewed as having heretical ideas and uh, was at odds with the King of England, um, and so he was executed. But still, um, we have then a printed uh, Greek, or sorry, a printed English New Testament. Um, now we did get the whole Bible pretty quick after that um, even in fact before uh, uh, Tyndall was actually executed uh, Miles Coverdale uh, who lived from 1488 to 1569 uh, he was uh, Tyndall's assistant and proofreader uh, and so he was the person who had the first complete uh, Bible printed in English in 1535 um, and he apparently was not as conversant with the uh, with the Greek and Hebrew, and so he used various Latin and German translations uh, and revised Tyndall's work and completed the Old Testament. Um, so he was he was good with his Latin and German, but he uh, he basically just you know had to patch up what, what Tyndall didn't get the chance to finish. Um, Matthew's Bible. Um, Thomas Matthew is the pen name of John Rogers, who lived from about 1500 to 1555. Uh, he also was an assistant of Tyndale. Um, and he revised uh, Tyndale's Bible and the Coverdale Bible. So he had access to both of them and basically made uh, a, a revision of those. Um, and he added copious notes and references, which caused a great deal of controversy. Uh, so much so that in 1538, royal injunctions forbade printing or importing uh, Bibles uh, with notes or prologues unless authorized by the king. Ben? Curious, was it the content of the notes or was it the fact I, that there were notes at all? I believe it was the contents. Um, I, I found it a, a little hard to find the exact details, but uh, but yeah, I believe that some of the notes were, were not very... Uh, were not appreciated by the uh, by the royal authorities. So, but I, I wish I could give you more details, but I don't have them. So, but yeah, there's. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, we are here in the midst of the Reformation, and there's uh, very much just across Europe uh, an issue of the uh, the Roman Catholic Church is basically saying, no, this is our official doctrine. You guys have to believe this. And lots of people reading the Bible and saying, it doesn't seem to be what it's saying. I think it says this. And so, uh, you know, there's all sorts of people in religious authority who are very concerned about people with new ideas that don't fit the, the old traditions. So, 
this is kind of just a part of that. Um, <clears throat> Taverner's Bible, um, this is kind of a, a very, not very well known. Uh, Richard Taverner uh, lived from 1505 to 1575, and he, uh, he basically just did a revision of Matthew's Bible. Uh, but it was very much eclipsed by another Bible that was printed in the same year, uh, the Great Bible. And this was done under the direction of Miles Coverdale, um, who we, we've seen he already had his own translation. Um, and it's a revision of Matthew's Bible as well. Uh, and this one was officially sanctioned by church and state in, uh, in, in England. <clears throat> and so this kind of became, <clears throat> excuse me, the, like the official Bible that, were, that was being used in England at this point. <clears throat> now, um, I'm sure many of you uh, are familiar with uh, some of the Reformation history of England, uh, but eventually Mary Tudor came to the throne of England, um, and that led uh, a number of uh, English-speaking Protestants to, to flee to Geneva. Um, and the result of that was the Geneva Bible. Uh, the New Testament was completed in 1557, <laughs> Uh, the Old Testament and a revised New Testament were done in 1560, and it was translated by English exiles in Geneva during the reign of Mary Tudor. Uh, it was uh, translated from the Greek and Hebrew, uh, utilizing the latest manuscript evidence. Um, so again, we see just this principle of going back to the originals, uh, not translating from a translation, but translating from the originals. And we see that they had a concern for like, okay, what's the best manuscript evidence that we can get a hold of? Um, and they were utilizing that. Um, I think it's actually important to note that just in terms of some of the discussions we've had about uh, textual criticism um, and some of the some of the ideas of uh, particularly like the ecclesiastical text position, where it's like, well, we should we should accept the text that you know that the reformers were using. Um, and the fact is that what we see the reformers doing is basically they're trying to get the best manuscript evidence they have. Uh, and um, I, I think it's reasonable to say that they probably would have been utilizing everything we utilize today uh, and wouldn't have limited themselves to uh, what they had access to. It's just that's all they had access to, so that's all they could have. And so I think it would be false to say that they rejected uh, manuscripts uh, that were discovered long after their lifetime. And sometimes that's the way it's presented. So I think to be true to the reformers, we should be utilizing the latest manuscript evidence. Um, <clears throat> now, this was the first uh, English Bible translation uh, by a committee. Um, again, that's another important step forward. Um, uh, previously, translations had been done by a single individual or a single individual who was taking somebody else's translation and just making a revision of it. Um, and so here we have um, a group of people getting together and as a committee creating a translation. Um, and that can kind of help with people who, uh, you know, you might just overlook something that somebody else sees. And so, you know, more, more eyes on the project uh, definitely help that. It also helps uh, with theological bias. Um, if somebody has a particular view that they really like, they might be tempted to translate it uh, in a way that supports that particular view. Um, in, in modern times, we've carried that even farther where uh, we make it a point uh, with our modern translations to do committee translations where we get people on the committee from a whole bunch of different denominations. 
to really try to minimize the risk that somebody's denominational preferences are going to find their way into the translation. So if you've got these people with different theological views coming together and trying to come up with a translation that they all agree on, then they, you know, they, they have to compromise and say, okay, this is a reasonable translation uh, that we can all agree on, rather than, okay, well, I'm going to just pick this translation that really supports my view. So uh, a good development in terms of the way that translations were done. It's also um, the first English Bible to contain the modern verse divisions in the New Testament, and the first Bible in any language to contain the modern verse divisions of the Old Testament. So um, the the New Testament divisions have been established in printed Greek texts, um, but this really established uh, our modern verse divisions, and this is kind of where it came from. I always, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I no. just was going to tell you, I actually had a pastor growing up that he served on the NIV translation. Uh-huh. And he was sort of sharing a little bit about you know what, what they did. And mm-hmm. he said if they got to a point where there was a disagreement over how to translate, it wasn't just like, well, what do you guys want to do? Like he would write papers and mm-hmm. submit them, mm-hmm. and you know there was much debate. You know, mm-hmm. so these things are, are weighty matters. It's not just like, well, so we pick this word or that word. You know, right? They had to really dig in and sort of prove their point. And stuff, yeah, so. yeah. That's that's. I mean, that's really good to kind of get that behind the scenes to see that it's like, yeah, they 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 are just not not just arbitrarily. Well, let's just pick something that we can all agree on. But they, you know, they're wrestling with it, trying to do research, writing papers trying to make sure it's like we need to get the accurate translation. So yeah, that's that's a very good point. Um, and what I was going to say um, is that I, I do think it's interesting sometimes if you watch movies about stuff that happened during the Reformation, uh, you know, sometimes you'll see uh, people quoting chapter and verse um, and, you know, and it might be something that's actually, you know, set before the 1550s um, and you know they didn't, they didn't have the you know the chapter and verse, so it's it's just kind of interesting. But that's just kind of anachronism of of uh, modern day movie makers who uh, just kind of assume that the the verse divisions go all the way back. So. Anyway, the Geneva Bible was uh, was very influential. Um, you know, obviously, you know the the English reformers uh, held this one very dear, um, and it was. You know, very popular amongst the common people of England, um, and just many people were using it. Um, the next one is the Bishop's Bible. Um, this is a revision of the Great Bible that was done in 1568, and it's it's kind of a reaction against the Geneva Bible. Um, again, the Geneva Bible was was very Protestant. Um, certainly had a lot of notes that were very Protestant. Um, and was just not really acceptable to a lot of people who uh, were promoting uh, more of a, of, of, I guess, a an Anglicanism uh, that is not strongly Protestant. If you if you're familiar with the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, um, she uh, she she kind of tried to take a middle way, and you know, and obviously she's trying to hold a kingdom together that has people that. Have you know very strong Protestant leanings and, and people who have very strong Roman Catholic leanings, and she's trying to you know hold hold her uh, her nation together, and so she does kind of take a middle way with the Anglican Church, 
Um, and uh, so the, the strong Protestant flavor of the Geneva Bible was definitely a problem. Um, and so uh, the, the Great Bible, or uh, sorry, the, the Bishop's Bible uh, was created, um, and it became the official Bible for use in church services. And so this is, this is what was used there for, for a while. Um, now, when uh, Elizabeth uh, reigned, there was also a uh, kind of a reverse situation that you had when Mary was reigning. Um, Elizabeth, fortunately, was not quite as, um, quite as ruthless to the, the people on the other end of the theological perspective. Um, but still, uh, many Roman Catholics did uh, flee England, uh, living in exile. And so during the reign of, of Elizabeth, uh, many English-speaking Roman Catholics uh, left England. Um, and in 1568, they founded a college at, and, and I'm not 100% certain on the pronunciation, so they can jump in if they, if they, uh, if they know for sure. Uh, but uh, Dawei, I think, um, Dawei in Spanish Flanders is where they founded a college in 1568. Uh, for 1578 to 1593, it relocated to Reims, France, uh, but then returned to Douai. Uh, and William Allen um, lived from 1532 to 1594. He led the founding of this college, and he wrote uh, to a colleague in 1578 about producing an English translation of the Bible sanctioned by Rome. And so everything we've been looking at so far has been either Protestant or at least moderately Protestant. Uh, we, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church has been much more focused on let's follow the Latin. Um, but uh, William Allen saw a need for an English translation that was more suitable for Roman Catholics. And uh, one of my resources quoted uh, his letter and I think it's it's very instructive of kind of the, the Roman Catholic perspective here. So I wanted to just include it. It's a little bit long. Um, he says, Catholics educated in the academies and schools have hardly any knowledge of the scriptures except in Latin when they are preaching to the unlearned and are obliged on the spur of the moment to translate some passage into the vernacular. They often do it inaccurately and with unpleasant hesitation because either there is no vernacular version of the words or it does not occur to them at the moment. Our adversaries, however, and that would be the Protestants, uh, have at their fingertips uh, from some heretical version all those passages of Scripture which seem to make for them. And by a certain deceptive adaptation and alteration of the second words produce the effect of appearing to say nothing but what comes from the Bible. This evil might be remedied if we too had some Catholic version of the Bible, for all the English versions are most corrupt. If His Holiness shall judge it expedient, we ourselves will endeavor to have the Bible faithfully, purely, and genuinely translated according to the edition approved by the Church, for we already have men most fitted for the work. And so there, um, obviously you see that they're struggling with the fact that there are many Protestants with English translations of the Bible and when they're in disputes, they're able to cite the Bible, and it really seems to promote the the, uh, the Protestant viewpoint. Um, there's probably a good reason for that, uh, other than just uh, you know their deceptive work. Um, but uh, anyway, so the Roman Catholics they they saw a, a need for getting an English translation, and so 
there you have the the Way Reims Bible. Um, uh, Gregory Martin, who died in 1582, was the principal translator. Um, he didn't survive to its publication, and there was some work that was done uh, after his death, so he's not the only one, but there's, it's difficult to tell exactly who all worked on it, but he was the principal translator. Um, and it was translated from the Latin Vulgate. Um, that's, um, when we go back to this statement here, uh, translated according to the to the edition approved by the church, um, that was the idea, is that, well, the, the Latin Vulgate, is the, is the that's the primary. Um, and so they wanted it translated from the Vulgate so that it matched what the Vulgate said uh, and weren't concerned with uh, whether it matched the, the Greek. Uh, New Testament uh, was published in 1589. The Old Testament was published in 1609 and 1610. And it really is a Roman Catholic reaction against Protestant English Bibles. Um, it did function um, to a large degree like the King James for English-speaking Roman Catholics and that it, it kind of became the standard uh, the standard English Bible for, uh, for Roman Catholics for many years. Anyway, interesting um, and, and worth knowing about that translation. But now we move on to, into the 17th century, the King James Bible. Obviously, I'm sure you're all very familiar with this one. Uh, it was commissioned to end the division between the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible. Um, that was a, you know, just a, a matter of contention during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And uh, it was actually just at the very beginning of the reign of King James, just after Elizabeth had died, uh, that, um, that people came to him and said, look, one of the things that we could really use is just a common Bible where we don't have the people at home reading the Geneva Bible and the, the bishops in the church reading from the bishop's Bible. Uh, we need, we need a, a common English Bible. And so it was commissioned uh, in 1604, I believe, um, and uh, 47 different scholars worked on it. So again, it was committee translation. It was completed um, in, in 1611, and it became the dominant English Bible for three and a half centuries. Um, until, uh, I mean, just very recently, um, basically within the, the lifetime of, of some of us in the room, you know, it was, it was uh, the Bible that people were using. It wasn't until the, uh, <clears throat> the 20th century that things really began to, to change and English Bibles, other than the King James, began to take some precedence. <clears throat> so that's kind of a look at kind of the history of um, English translations of the Bible. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about modern translations as well, but I want to talk about some other things first. Um, first is why new translations? Um, I mean, we had the we had the King James. It served the church for three and a half centuries. Um, why why would we need to bother with a new translation? Well, first. Um, the English language changes over time. Uh, if any of you have ever read any old works of English, um, I'm sure you will have noticed that. Um, one example uh, from the King James Bible itself, Acts 10.42, uh, says, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. Uh, 
the ESV says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, to the modern reader, the, the King James one can look very strange, the, the quick and the dead, uh, because we don't use the word quick the same way as they used back in the 17th century. 17th century, quick was the same thing as living. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, you look at that, he's like, oh, so is he the judge of, he's not the judge of the slow, just the, the, the quick, right? You know? Um, so that's just an example of the way the English language has changed. Um, and so if we want people to understand the Bible without having to explain to them, uh, you know, the, the way people spoke in the 17th century, then it's very useful to have a translation that reflects, um, you know, the, the language of the day. Um, that's why even the translations we use periodically get updated and probably someday are going to get superseded by some other translation because English continues to change. Now, the more literate a society, the slower it changes, but um, I'm not sure that we're terribly literate. I mean, we're literate than, more literate than some uh, eras of history, but uh, there's, there's certainly the possibility that English is going to look very different than it does now in you know, 100 years, 200 years, and new Bible translations will have to be made just on the basis of the, the English language uh, changing. Another thing is that new manuscripts are discovered. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on that, really, but that is, that's something that we've talked about extensively, uh, is new manuscripts are discovered. It gives us more light on what the uh, original uh, wording of the text was. And so as we discover those things, then uh, we need new translations, at least to add footnotes, um, if not to actually make a, a change in the actual text on the page. Um, and then finally, um, there are new insights into the original languages. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, people are just, they study the language and they, they discover things and they discover that, like, in the past we've just been translating this a little bit incorrectly. Um, one very notable example of that uh, is what's called the Granville Sharp construction. Um, and it shows up here in 2 Peter 1.1. Um, in the King James, Simon Peter, uh, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained uh, like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, and in the ESV, uh, Simeon Peter, uh, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, hopefully you can see that the difference there is that in the King James, it appears that Peter is referring to God the Father and then separately our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, whereas the ESB indicates that it's of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that it's simply referring to Jesus Christ and is using the terms God and Savior both applied directly to Jesus. Um, and that is uh, really just a function of, uh, of uh, Ranville Sharp looking at this particular construction of, the, of the, the syntax of the sentence and coming to a conclusion about uh, the way that it's used 
uh, in uh, the Greek of the New Testament and come to the conclusion that that is the proper way to translate it. So, uh, in a sense, we, we now have a new clear statement about the deity of Christ uh, that was not clearly available to us um, in the King James Version just because we have a better understanding of the Greek language. And so that's just an example of uh, people study the Greek language, people study the Hebrew language, and uh, you know sometimes new manuscripts are discovered uh, that are not biblical manuscripts, but that uh, give us more of a view of the way that a language is used at that particular time, and they just open up some insights in the way the language is used and help us to have better translations of the Bible. Any questions on any of that? Hopefully that's persuasive that we do need new translations. Translation philosophy. Um, there are different translation philosophies that people use when they're creating translations. Basically, you have uh, formal equivalency, or it's also called word for word. Uh, you have dynamic equivalency, it's also called functional equivalency, functional equivalency, and it's also sometimes called thought for thought. And then you have the idea of a paraphrase. Now, these are not uh, absolute categories, um, but they are a spectrum. Uh, and they're not necessarily even universally followed with any particular translation. If you take a very word-for-word -word translation, there are going to be places in it where they translate certain things in a, in a kind of a thought-for-thought -thought manner. If you take a very thought-for-thought -thought translation, uh, there's going to be places where it's just going to be literally word-for-word. -word. Uh, but it does just kind of give you an idea of what's the philosophy of the, of the translators um, as, they're, as they're making their translation. Um, and... Bible translations are going to fall on the spectrum, and you know you could you could lay it out and just say, okay, well this one's more you know word for word, this one's more dynamic equivalency, this is somewhere in between, and this one's here somewhere in between these two. Um, so it's 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 you know you can't have them you can't view them as just being absolute categories. It is a spectrum. Um, the idea behind them. Uh, people who want more of a formal equivalency or word for word, um, they think that the best way to convey the meaning of the original is basically just to bring across the words of the original as much as possible um, and only to deviate from that when you just have to in order to make it you know, sensible in English. Um, a, di a dynamic equivalency uh, perspective is, is more of the, the, the idea that like we really need to get the sense in English and it's just so often the, the word for word is not going to really convey that. It's going to uh, convey some wrong ideas and so we really need to try to, um, <clears throat> to get the thought behind it and bring that across. Um, and, uh, and then the paraphrase... Um, a paraphrase, they, that really is like, well, we really just need to like get this across in English. Um, and they're not even really concerned with being that closely tied to the text, just to get the idea of the text. Um, and so it really does have more of a tendency to depart uh, from, the, uh, from the text. Um, and so there's, there's different ideas. Um, 
it's it's certainly um, I think we need to understand that that all of these perspectives, their intention is that they want to be able to communicate what the Word of God says to people. Uh, it's not that I mean sometimes I see it represented as you know the word for word people they you know they're the ones that want people to have the Word of God and the you know the other categories. They're, they're just concerned with you know just promoting their own ideas. They're not really concerned with uh, with uh, uh, you know giving people what the word of God says. And I think that would be unfair. Um, I think I think everybody's goal is the same. Um, I do think that um, I, I I think that it's preferable to be more towards the formal equivalency side. Um, the the. The, the fact is, is that's that's just going to be better for your study. Um, the 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 farther you get into dynamic equivalency and paraphrase, the more that the translator is doing interpretation for you. Um, and I think that it's it's better to have the interpretation um, really. Uh, it's better to have that done in a sense in the church to have our elders do the job of saying, okay, here's what it says. I'm going to try to explain to you what it means in the context um, and and less to have the translators doing that uh, interpretation for you uh, because it's just it's just too easy for things to be obscured that way. So um, I, I certainly understand the, the perspective of if you make it too formal equivalency, then it's going to be difficult for people to follow. And you want people to be able to read the Bible and understand it. Um, so that's certainly a consideration. But um, especially for studying the Word of God, the more you can get as close to the original um, Greek and Hebrew as possible without, you know, without obscuring the meaning, I think that's the better approach. And uh, that our pastors should be uh, providing most of the, you know, the, the assistance and interpretation rather than the translators. Any thoughts on that? Or... Yes. Yeah, I think I think uh, I, I would agree with you. The, the formal equivalency, you know, that just requires more work, you know, because if, if I said something like that's cool, well, that could have a lot of different meanings. Mm-hmm. So you have to take the time to sort of look at those different meanings and see what fits the context and mm-hmm. you know stuff like that. But you know, you can understand better what that sentence means if you do look at the individual words. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a good point. Can, can you give us examples of maybe the different trans, some different translations that would fit under the different categories, just so people have an idea of what you're talking about? Yeah, I, I kind of was hoping to do that, and I didn't I didn't get time to get them on slides. But um, I know one example that pops into my head that uh, I've seen used is. Uh, at, at one point, uh, Jesus says, um, uh, he says, uh, I think in, in literally in the Greek, it comes out to uh, let this sink into your ears. Um, but then you often have translations that say, listen carefully to what I say. Um, so like a formal equivalency would just say, let this sink into your ears. Whereas uh, it's more dynamic to say, listen carefully to what, I, to what I'm saying. Um, <clears throat> I, I assume that's what you're yeah, well, and, and, and I was just thinking, even if people wanted to see an example, like the New American Standard mm-hmm. would be more of that formal mm-hmm. equivalent, right. you know, and stuff. Whereas, 
the dynamic equivalency would be more like the NIV. Mm-hmm. You know, the ESV would probably fit between those uh-huh. two, yes. those first two. And actually, that's why we have chosen the ESV. Because uh-huh. I wrestled with whether right. to do the New American Standard or the ESV. And I thought, well, you know, I, you know, just understanding the dynamics that you want to understand what it means. Mm-hmm. But sometimes to understand what it means, you have to understand the words. You know, I wanted, I was trying to live in that tension. So that's why we chose ESV. And then, of course... Paraphrase would be like the Living Bible or mm-hmm. you know something like that. But just yeah. so people have an idea if they want to go and compare those different translations, yes. they can see yeah. like those philosophies come out in the translation. Yeah, and and um, I mean the, one of the reasons that I want to talk about this is just so that when you're looking at what Bible you use, you are aware of those uh, translation philosophies. And I was going to talk a little bit in the future here about uh, different translations that we have. Uh, and one of the resources that we have back on our resource list, or on our, on our sorry, on our resource rack back here, um, <clears throat> is this uh, Bible translations comparison. Uh, and this actually does this for you, where it just runs through a whole bunch of you know the modern translations we have and analyzes them in various ways, <clears throat> including in what is the translation philosophy. Um, so. This is actually a good resource if you want to go and look and see, um, you know, where does a particular translation fall in terms of translation philosophy. But <clears throat> Pastor Rick is exactly right. The New American Standard is definitely more on the formal equivalency. The NIV is more on the dy- dynamic equivalency, and the ESD is somewhere in between. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, there's, you know, just <clears throat> there's a. There's lots of different translations, and um, you know, and there are uh, resources for looking at it and trying to figure out which translation uses which translation philosophy. So, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interject so no. much, but this is where the new translations can be helpful. Because, mm-hmm. like, when I was growing up, I actually remember that when the NIV hit the market, because you know we were using King James or mm-hmm. maybe the revised or you know, the revised standard version. This is a little more modern uh-huh. and stuff. But then the NIV hit, and I just sort of, every church adopted that. Okay. You know, and, and that's okay, but, you know, I, I preached out of the NIV, and I had to correct a lot of things, uh-huh. you right. know, and stuff. And it's just been neat to see the church now adopt more the ESV, mm-hmm. which is a little more solid uh-huh. right. translation and stuff. So those modern translations can actually be a good thing mm-hmm. to move us in a more biblical, faithful you know, testimony to what the scripture says. So. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, the 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 NIV is definitely not the best translation to be to be teaching from. It's still, you know, a useful translation, but um, but yeah, it, it has its limitations. So um, yeah, we've we we definitely have lots of good translations these days. Um, now there are some uh, controversial things that happen. Um, sometimes there's Theologically motivated translations. Some of the, you know, the big obvious ones are stuff like the New World Translation of Jehovah's Witnesses, where they go out of their way to try to to hide the deity of Christ. Um, just various other things. Uh, uh, there's there have been <clears throat> translations that have uh, had issues with the uh, with the doctrine of atonement, penal substitution, and they've uh, they've had some translations that have kind of obscured some of those doctrines in scripture. Um, one of the big things that pops up is, often is inclusive language. Um, 
and this is a complicated topic, and we're not going to you know spend a lot of time on it. Um, is the the reality is that the English language has changed, um, whereas uh, once upon a time in the English language, <coughs> um, using the masculine in a generic sense was very common. Um, where you know, uh, if you spoke of men, you know, it's it doesn't mean you're talking about only males. You know, you're talking about males and females. Um, you have you know language of uh, you know, talking about Christian brothers, uh, it doesn't necessarily even mean just brothers and not, you know, not the females as well. Um, but uh, the, <clears throat> the, the English language has shifted more and more to demanding that we be explicit in those categories. Um, and so translations have struggled with how to deal with that. Um, and some have uh, very much embraced inclusive language uh, where they really want to, you know, try to, you know, follow the the pattern that English is taking, and some have been, you know, more conservative in their approach to doing that. I certainly think that it's, uh, it's, it's we do we do want to make it where you know people aren't misunderstanding what the Bible says uh, when it uses the masculine, um, but uh, we also don't want to take it too far. Some some have even gone so far to try to. Uh, blur this that they try to use uh, gender neutral language even referring to God you know those are really rare translations that do that where they you know they try to remove statements where you know calls God father you know and calls God parent instead and stuff like that so um, but these are just some examples of some things that pop up and so uh, you definitely want to be aware uh, you know, when when people are making translations, so they have some kind of motivation. Do they have something they're trying to trying to push that is going to uh, basically taint their translation? This again goes back to uh, the value of committee translations, where if you have a you know a group of people with various theological views, then you're you're going to hopefully minimize that type of thing that's going on. Um, and then just to go through some modern translations, talked about this a little bit already, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, uh, the Christian Standard Bible is another one that's popularly used, the New International Version, the New, Tri New Living Translation. Um, New Living Translation is, is definitely very much on the dynamic side, even uh, bordering on paraphrase. Um, so it might be useful just for your devotional reading, but obviously not. Um, not a great uh, resource for for study. Um, does anybody have any questions about any of these translations? Yeah. Okay, what you were just saying at the end there as a comment, because I grew up more preaching the formal equivalency type of thing, and I've come to realize that with the paraphrase there is a strength in it if you just want something that's visual. No I'm sorry, what's it? With the more paraphrased type things, they are useful for more of a devotional type thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's kind of what they are like. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, you could almost view them as a light commentary. Yes. Um, because you're just getting more of an interpretation from the translators, and so it's it's you know it's almost like you've got you know you know study notes in yes. a sense that are saying okay this is what we think it means. So it can definitely be helpful, but um, you want to realize the limitations. Of now, one other thing I want to talk about here um, is uh, one translation or many. 
as far as like the way we as Christians should uh, should approach things. And I think probably you 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 guys are in the same place I am based on comments that were just made. Um, there there are certain pros and cons. Um, if you if you just use one translation, um, that's very helpful for public reading. Um, if you do public reading and everybody's got a different translation that's sitting in the you know in the pews, um, it can be kind of difficult because it's like, um, it's like oh, well, I'm I'm trying to follow what he's saying, but my translation doesn't read the same way. Um, so that does uh, cause difficulties if you have many translations. So that's a that's something that's favorable to having just one translation. Uh, memorization as well. Um, People are memorizing scripture. Um, it can definitely get very confusing if you're working with a group of people and you're trying to memorize scripture and one of you is memorizing out of the ESV and one of you is memorizing out of the New American Standard and one of you is memorizing out of the NIV, then you know you guys, you guys can all get very confused. I mean, I remember at one point I was part of a memorization group and um, you know, and there we had this issue happening to some degree and there was one person who was just like, she wanted to, you know, cover her ears anytime something was, you know, it was a verse she'd memorized, but it was in a different version than what she'd memorized because she was so afraid it was going to just mess up her uh, her memorization if she heard it in a different translation. So um, there's definitely something to be said for, like, if everybody's using the same translation, these things just work great. Um, whereas if you're not all using the same translation, then these things can be a little more difficult. But, on the other side, um, using many translations will often give you additional insights. And that's what, you know, Ben was just talking about. Um, you know, even just using the ones that are closer to a paraphrase. They can give you additional insights. Um, I know I've been in many Bible studies where we've been discussing something um, and, you know, looking at a text and somebody will pipe up and say, oh, well, in this translation that I have, it reads this way, and it will lead to some, you know, some very interesting discussion, um, just to help, you know, have a better insight of what the text actually says. Um, it's also good for catching misunderstandings. Um, it's something that I've seen in my in my own study of the Bible, where something is phrased a particular way in English, and I might just have a misunderstanding of of uh, of what that is um and if if i see it then in another translation then you know that is going to help me say oh wait you know what the way i was interpreting that is just completely incompatible with this other translation you know and let's just say for example it's something where you know the original language you know isn't any different between these two translations um it's just they've chosen a different style for the way to do it. Um, you know, you could say, okay, well, you know, I was looking at translation A, and I had option one or option two for how to understand it, and I just defaulted to option one. But now I look at translation B, and I see the way it translates it is consistent with interpretation two of the first one. I was like, okay, I was I was just defaulting to the wrong interpretation of what was being said. I don't know if that's clear. Um, with, uh, I, I mean, I, I know like one example I have is, is that uh, um, I remember for a long time misunderstanding uh, Philippians 2 where, uh, where it, uh, it spoke of, of Jesus um, who, uh, 
didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And for whatever reason, I was just so used to the idea of grasped being uh, used in terms of understanding. Um, and so you know, I didn't really know how to interpret all that, but I just always assumed it was like that Jesus didn't think that equality with God was a thing to be understood. Um, and then, you know, it was later looking at studies on it and other translations that I realized, is, no, that's actually, it's the idea of grasping, of taking, of seizing, uh, is the idea that, that equality with God was something that Jesus wasn't trying to, um, you know, to hold on to, but was humbling himself instead. And so that was a, that was a misunderstanding for me, just in the way I was used to the word grasped being used. And uh, so hopefully that's a, that's a clearer example um, so using many translations are going to help catch those types of things. Um, it also prevents translation attachment. Um, you know, we see King James onlyism. Um, uh, there's been other uh, instances of that type of thing. I mean, the the uh, the Vulgate um, was very much had that same issue when people started coming up with new Latin translations uh, during the Renaissance era there was definitely a lot of kickback because people were very used to the Vulgate. Um, and even when Jerome translated the Vulgate, people were used to the old Latin version. Um, and so they, you know, they were upset about some of his translations. Um, and so it's, it's just, if, if all you ever have is just one translation of the Bible and you're just very used to that, um, then if somebody comes along with something else, then it sounds like, well, you're changing the Word of God. When it's like, no, it's just a different translation. Um, so that's another value in having many translations. And it just reminds us that the original language text is what is inspired. Uh, it reminds us not you know, not to get attached to uh, a particular English translation and just to always go back to what does the original say. Um, yes, uh, English translations are good, they're valuable, they, they give us the understanding of the text, but they can, in places... Uh, have errors in them and so we don't ever want to get just too tied to it was like well this is what my English Bible says um, we need to go back and say okay well, what does the Greek actually mean what does the Hebrew actually mean um, so that I think um, is uh, are, are, are good arguments for using many translations in the church I think you can to, to a in a sense, you can have a balance of these. You can have, you know, like we do here, where we have basically one uh, translation that we use as the primary translation of the church, but um, everybody here knows that, you know, you're free to, to use the, you know, and it's the ESV, but it's like, sure, you're free to use the New American Standard. You're, you know, you're free to, to look at the New King James, you know, you're free to look at the Christian Standard Bible um, and, and bring those up in discussions. Um, and I think that's, um, that's a, a good approach to it. Interestingly enough, in the preface to the 1611 King James Version, uh, in the, the translators to the readers, it states, variety of translations is profitable for finding out the sense of the scriptures. So even the King James translators uh, didn't have any notion that their translation uh, should be the, uh, the be-all, end-all. And then finally... Um, just as we're talking about translations, I just looked up this information on Wycliffe.net. Current situation with Bible translations just in the world. Uh, the Bible has been translated into 17, sorry, 717 different languages. 
the New Testament, and, and this is inclusive, the New Testament has been translated into 2,299 languages. Uh, portions of the Bible have been translated into 3,495 languages. So lots of languages have at least portions of the Bible. But um, there's still work to be done. Uh, they are in progress on 828 languages uh, that they're trying to get to the point where they do have at least portions of the Bible uh, in those languages. And there are still, uh, according to their studies, 1,892 languages that need a translation and they have no work in progress. And so there's where they've identified there's a people group that they speak a language, they really do need to have a Bible in their language. And so far, you know, it's just like the resources haven't been available to, to get that done. So, but um, we can see great work has been done in making the Bible available to people in their own language. Uh, but there is still work to do. So, any final thoughts or comments? Okay. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do just thank you for your word. We thank you that. Uh, just we, we're just so privileged uh, who speak the English language that we have uh, just such a, a history of uh, having your word translated into English and so many uh, translations available. And uh, God, I just pray that we would uh, just truly value your word, that we would uh, just appreciate uh, the great benefit it is to have your word that we can read ourselves and are not just dependent on somebody else to to tell us what it means, but that we can study it ourselves. And God, I pray that you would just continue uh, the work through your people to have the Bible translated into uh, different languages so that more and more people can hear your word, so that your word can be spread. And Lord, that um, salvation uh, will spread to the ends of the earth, and your name will be glorified. In Christ's name.